Life Audio. Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant podcast. We are in a series going through the Sermon on the Mount. We're looking at Jesus's comments in Matthew 5, 17 to 20 about his role with the law. Um, so welcome. This is the Law versus Jesus part three. So if you've just joined us, it's a rant. We're going to go places that most dare not. So don't necessarily think of a three-point calculated sermon with three points of application. I mean, that could happen rarely, but we want our listeners to think deeply and to process the biblical text, wrestle with it. And you can do this, and we will all benefit from it, our churches, our communities, our families. We need to dig deep in in these troubled times. And we've been listening to Jesus' comments in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly here with his relationship with the law. And, uh, you know, we've looked at the text, the theology, the, uh, the this podcast, and the next two, I'm going to do something a little bit differently, kind of fun. Um, and I'm going to read from my soon-to-be-published book, The Rabboni. It's a novel, and, and it kind of fleshes out Jesus' comments 10 years after G- Matthew wrote his gospel. He's unpacking Jesus, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. I hope you enjoy it and that it shines some light on Jesus's words. Before we plunge in, many of you know already that the Gospel Rant is now partnering with Life Audio with this podcast. So that means a few changes. Not a lot, but here's one. We're going to take a break to hear from a sponsor. Maybe two. That's right. Sponsors. Isn't that wonderful? And when we come back, we'll get into the Rabboni. Stick around. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Okay, welcome back. Just a reminder, here is what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Meaning, you're not going to have a relationship with God. You won't experience his smile, his favor, his shining face. So this is very, very important. We unpacked it in the last two podcasts, but like I said, in this podcast and the next 
Next two, I'm going to read a portion of my new, soon-to-be-published novel, The Rabboni. It's about Matthew and a team of missionaries to Aksum in Ethiopia some 10 years after he wrote the gospel. He's unpacking and answering questions particularly related to this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. So what did Jesus mean? How was it understood? How did the Pharisees take it? Was he smiling when he said it? Those kind of things. So we're going to pick up in the book in chapter 22, I think, where Reuben, a former member of the Jewish Sanhedrin and now a follower of Jesus and on Matthew's missionary team, he's going to be explaining to Jewish leaders at a synagogue in Ethiopia how they should understand righteousness and and the paths to righteousnesses that can gain you God's favor. And by the way, when he said this, the temple had already been destroyed by the Romans, raised to the ground. So there, I mean, look, there, there can be no more offering for the Jews, no more day of atonement, no more sacrifice. But Reuben is going to speak to this educated crowd about the five paths to righteousness available, five ways of looking at the role of the law to get God's favor. And I hope this clarifies things uh, or fleshes it out, right? So enjoy. Reuben was a large man, a head taller than I, full of frame. With his broad, muscular shoulders, strong arms, and large hands, he could have been a stonemason or a farmer. He normally wore a beige wool tunic, two large squares set together. On top was his brown mantle fastened at his shoulder by a common gold pin. His garment was clean, but hardly ostentatious. He felt that wealth should not be worn." His face was round, eyes brown and bright, and almost always the thing most noticed by others was his broad, toothy smile. He had a full gray beard that hung to his chest that he continually stroked. He said that it helped him think, and I would say he is among the smartest and wisest men that I have ever known. Reuben came from a strict Jewish family in Hebron, south of Jerusalem. He and his siblings, seven of them, were taught Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic from a very young age. Reuben had not only showed great interest in the Torah, but he amazed the scholars at his school with his insightful questions. Soon, his rabbi reached out to the great Pharisaic scholar Gamaliel in Jerusalem to tell him about this brilliant and precocious child. It didn't take long for Reuben to take his rightful place alongside of Gamaliel in the school of Hillel. Reuben would regularly teach the gathered Jewish leaders at the Aksum Synagogue. There were other teachers, but Reuben was quite unique for several reasons. First, he was an excellent rabbi, skilled at discipleship, having been taught by two of the greatest rabbis of all Judaism, Gamaliel the Elder and then Rabban Yohanan ben Zakkai. Of Zakkai, it has been said that no one before had mastered the entire Mishnah, Halakha, Madras, astronomy, numerology, language of angels and demons, along with all mystical aspects of creation and constellations. Also, and this is perhaps the greatest of all reasons that these men and women came to listen to Reuben, he was there. He lived during that important, danger-fraught time for Judaism, and for much of it, he served on the Sanhedrin. He spoke as an important eyewitness. This day, I'm guessing that there were over 50 Jewish leaders in the large room of the Aksum Synagogue complex. All of them know Reuben personally. Many of them had heard his accounts before in bits and pieces, but this was different. Reuben is going to give a full account of Judaism from the time of Jesus, around year 30, to today. I know how Reuben has struggled to gather all of his thoughts, 
it was not only the story of Judaism's tragic and difficult transition, but it is also the story of Reuben's search for truth. Here's Reuben. And I should note that for you who are unfamiliar with rabbinic Judaism, when authoring a written document, scholars like Reuben will almost always use the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, when referring to God's mercy, or Elohim, when more focused upon God's judgment. These two names express the totality of God's providence, his two medot, or measures. When he is speaking, though, Reuben will only refer to God respectfully as Elohim. Welcome, my friends and colleagues. May Elohim richly bless us as we struggle to understand his working among our people, his people. Praise be to the Elohim of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Amen. He had raised his hand skyward to praise God. The crowd stood in agreement and followed with a very hearty amen. Then Reuben paused, looked to the ground, stroked his beard, and took a deep breath. When he felt ready and the group had settled down on the stone benches surrounding him in a semicircle, he raised his face and began with a typically Reuben smile. As you know, brothers, the Sanhedrin was the official religious court of Israel, the court of 71. The great Sanhedrin met in the temple in Jerusalem in a building called the Hall of Hewn Stones every day except festivals and the Shabbat. In the past, the Sanhedrin limited its recruiting to a combination of the priesthood, the Kahunim, Levites, and then some ordinary Jews who were members of those families having a pure lineage such that their daughters were allowed to marry priests. Due to the obvious, very public nepotism and corruption at the highest levels of the temple in our days, the Sanhedrin shifted its demographic by intentionally choosing more and more rabbinic sages, the Pharisees, those from both main schools, Shammai and Hillel. I can remember still when the high priest was also the Nazi, the head of the Sanhedrin, but no more, particularly after the Roman governor of Judea shocked the Jerusalem community by naming Annas and then Caiaphas as high priest. That was clearly a public overreach of authority and almost caused a rebellion, and should have. Since that time, the priests and Levites and other Sadducees have, with only a few notable exceptions, largely been shunned from the Sanhedrin. And also, historically, Hillel and only his descendants have since served as the Nazi of the Sanhedrin only Pharisees, and only this rabbinical school. Hillel was the Nazi until around year 10. His successor was his son, Simeon ben Hillel, who served for 20 years. And then came Simeon's son, Gamaliel the Elder, until year 50. And then it got interesting. Reuben cocked his head, raised his left eyebrow, and smiled. We all knew that the story was indeed about to get interesting. Many of the men here in Aksum were unaware of the inner workings of the Jerusalem leadership. Few Jews in rural areas, or certainly of the diaspora, would dare ask or pay too much attention to rumors, at least publicly. But you can be sure, all were curious. He grinned as he looked over the crowd. He had their complete attention. He drank a swig of ale, wiped his full beard with his sleeve, and pressed on. Normally, it was assumed that Gamaliel the elder would be succeeded by his eldest son, Simeon ben Gamaliel. It was just expected at the time, but something very interesting happened. Hillel's best student was universally accepted to be Rabban Zakkai. 
Zakai was not a descendant of Hillel or a descendant of King David, but many, perhaps most of the Pharisaic leadership, desired that he be nominated as the Nazi. Others preferred Simeon. That led to a huge divide in this important body. Reuben went on to explain some of the important political nuances behind the confusion. Reuben has spent the last 10 years interviewing witnesses and survivors. His account is credible and certainly explains so much about the fall of the temple and the drastic changes that have occurred within Judaism. Today's Judaism is only a shadow of what it was only three decades ago. In fact, only one decade ago. Here's Reuben again. By the year 50, several things were happening in Judea. Most of it had to do with Rome. There arose, mostly from Galilee, a populist party of extremist zealots who referred to themselves as the Biryanim. They were Jews who were committed to overthrowing Rome and reestablishing the Maccabean kingdom of a half century before. Many people in Galilee and Judea, but especially in Galilee, supported the movement. The Biryanim believed that they could overthrow Rome. They were so wrong. Rome had become more and more cruel to our people, and a conflict seemed inevitable. The zealots were unified by their goals, but certainly not leadership. And by the time of the destruction, there were multiple armies led by multiple so-called King of the Jews in the besieged city. It was a disaster, but no one could stop it. There was too much water that had passed that bridge. Truth told, the zealots were gaining increasing support from among the Pharisees. In fact, Simeon, Hillel's great-grandson, blessed be he, became a supporter of one of the Biryanim leaders, John of Geshala. I will say more in a moment, but that was a very unwise decision by the nominal Sanhedrin Nazi. Unfortunately, Simeon used his considerable influence to urge more of the Sanhedrin to officially support the zealots. For the most part, the school of Shammai was already behind the zealots, and like I said, many of the Hillelites also fell in line behind the urgings of Simeon. My master, Rabban Zakai, took a very unpopular stand against the zealots urging for a peace with Rome through compromise. So, as you can see, during the most critical moments in the history of our people, the Sanhedrin was tragically split and functionally had two Nazis, Simeon and Zakai. I know for a fact that Sakai never wanted such an honor. He did not speak about it often. And by the way, the Sadducees, who by this time owed most of their power, wealth, security, and future livelihood to Rome, were proponents of an unqualified peace. They urged the citizens to throw down their arms and plea for mercy. Certainly, they were concerned that a war with Rome could be devastating and end with a crisis related to the temple. And they were right, it turns out. Reuben then suggested that the population was also split, but more and more the growing consensus was that now was the time to rebel and become a free, independent Jewish nation again. And if not now, when? Back to Reuben. If we did not defeat them, Rome would not hesitate to punish all. And by that time, the Roman army horde had successfully surrounded the city, so there was no escape. Surrender or fight were the only two choices. And then the zealots made the decision even easier. All right, I'm going to stop there. We're going to pick it up uh, at at that very important part of Jewish history, but we need to have a break from our sponsors. So uh, sit tight and we'll see you soon. Okay, welcome back. We're going to pick up where Reuben left off. In the year 59, the Biryanim did something that sealed Jerusalem's fate. 
The city leaders had spent the better part of a year gathering food, supplies, and armaments that could outlast a very long siege. The Biryanim unfortunately went and burned down the warehouses and destroyed all the siege supplies. Now, the only remaining option for the starving population was open warfare with the powerful armies of Rome that were then bearing down upon Jerusalem. It was a fatal mistake, of course. And to add to the people's misery, any who proposed surrender or peace were summarily murdered by the Biryanim. That almost happened to my master, but Elohim intervened. Reuben went on to tell the amazing story of how Zakai faked his death by asking his nephew and other disciples to put him in a closed casket, pretend that he had perished, and to take him through the gate guarded by zealot fanatics who were always on the lookout for traitors who wanted to surrender to Rome. Sakai knew that it was proper for the dead to be buried outside the city, particularly one of the members of the Sanhedrin, and Zakai was very old, and so it was reasonable that he had perished and gone to paradise. The guards, after a long interrogation, allowed the disciples to go and bury the corpse. The students took their master to the Roman general Vespasian, who was laying siege to the city. Reuben believed that Rome had many spies in the city, and so were aware that Zakai was one of the leading voices urging the city to surrender. He welcomed an audience with his firebrand, Zakai. Story is told, and Reuben said that though he couldn't prove it, he believed that it was true. When greeting the general Vespasian, Zakai referred to him as emperor. Vespasian corrected Zakai, but at that moment, a messenger brought Vespasian the news that he was indeed the new emperor of Rome. Vespasian asked Zakai what request he was making, and Zakai said only three. First, he requested that the Romans guarantee the safety of the scholars of Yavna where the new Sanhedrin would be located. Second, he wanted Rome's guarantee for the survival of the family of Rabban Gamaliel. And lastly, that the Romans allow their physicians to restore the health of Rabbi Zadok, who had fasted for 40 days to pray for the safety of the city and the temple. All these were granted to Zakai. Reuben continued, As I have thought about it for over a decade, it is fair to suggest that there are five ways five Jewish paths proposed to enter the kingdom of Elohim. They are not exclusive, not at all. You will hear much overlap and shared terminology, and yet five clearly definable paths held by well-meaning righteous Jews who have felt the abject silence of the heavens and longed for more. But to be clear, while there are overlaps, there are also great differences, vast chasms as well. And so, a discerning and wise Jew who wants to know Elohim's favor, who wants Elohim's blessing for them and their families, and to experience his shining face, who wants to enjoy the covenant relationship promised to our father Abraham, they must pick a path. You must pick a path, my friends. There are three paths that I think we can reject prima facie, so I will spend little time on them but enough to honor you here in Oxum today who have previously embraced each of these proposed spiritual paths to Elohim. First, the Zealots. There were many in Jerusalem who believed that if our people would just organize and arm themselves and violently overthrow our pagan occupiers who have unclean hands, serve idols, and who deny Torah, then Elohim would return to Jerusalem. 
his Shekinah glory would re-enter the temple and Israel would be returned to world leadership. The zealots failed. The hordes of the Roman army gave them no quarter. After the tragedy at Masada, the zealot movement in Jerusalem has been viciously decimated. They were slaughtered or transported throughout the realm as slaves. Their influence was not limited to a single formal party or sect. In fact, they were never able to organize behind one leader, even those who exhibited messianic giftings and healings and prophecies and such, reportedly. At the end, even in the besieged city of Jerusalem, there were at least two large armies. There was the Galilean, John of Geshala, who brought an army into Jerusalem, claiming to be king of the Jews, even appointing his own high priest, Phanius. They tragically committed many indecencies and soiled the temple. Also, there was the Idumean Simon ben Giora, who also brought an army into the city and set himself up as a competing king. Both so-called kings were crushed by Vespasian's son, Titus, not to mention the many who claimed to be Moses-like prophets. You can see the vileness of the movement at the end. Not only did they fight against Rome, but they also slaughtered fellow Jews who sincerely and honestly disagreed with them. So many innocents were murdered as cowards and traitors. Some were dear friends of mine. This was not of Elohim. I can say that clearly now, no offense meant, but this was not the sign of the kingdom of the Messiah to come. Having said that, in those last months and weeks, many priests and many Pharisees, including Rabban Simon ben Gamaliel, unwisely joined their ranks. But they're gone as well. They were also intentionally and brutally hunted down by Rome's army and assassins. I cannot say that this philosophy cannot arise again. History suggests that it will, but theologically, the notion that Elohim's favor for Israel is being withheld somehow because we have not saved ourselves is utter nonsense. I believe that Elohim will indeed raise Israel up in the last days, but it will be of his doing, not an army of the Jews, not through the sword of the Biryanim. He paused, looking around to see the faces of his audience. There were no obvious questions, so he pressed on. Well, we're not going to press on. We're going to pick it up next time. I hope that you're enjoying the Rabboni. And if so, let us know. Bill at gospel-app.com. Look, some folks prefer narrative to see. Others prefer theology. I like them both. The next two podcasts will pick it up here, Reuben's words, to the synagogue in Aksum. And uh, help us get the word out. If you want to know when we publish the Rabboni novel, again, let me know. Bill at gospel-app.com and we will get uh, the word to you, okay? Until next time, we will see you at the Gospel Rant Podcast. Take heart, child of God. These EPs found their way into the hands of Chris Tomlin, and so we got this email out of the blue that while he was inviting us to go on this major arena tour of the United States, and at that time we were like, well, we're not even really a band. Do we tell him we're not a band? Chris Llewellyn from REM Collective shares some of his life story on The Walk, a podcast for worshipers. Join us to hear conversations and devotionals from the artists of the church. Find The Walk on lifeaudio.com, worshipleader.com, or your favorite podcast platform.